Come on, man. And with the local DBC news, Evan Kuja with a triumphant comeback. More But tonight, don't call it a comeback. And welcome to the Gen X Playback Show. It's your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And we are calling... We are calling... We are going to call it a comeback. Uh, despite what LL Cool J is saying, but uh, what a great way to start off this particular episode is is to have one of the master rappers in the history of rap music to uh, lead us off here in this episode. When I kind of was creating the concept for this particular episode... I, I had Elo's voice in the back of my head when I was like when I threw out about a comeback. I'm like, well, don't call it a comeback. Yeah, yeah. So Elo is not his, you're not going to disrespect him and say it's a comeback. I never left. <laughs> That's right. However, uh, some of the artists that we have been discussing, you know, and by the way, welcome here to joining us now for my list. You know, in, in the previous episode, you got to listen to Scott give his list. I'm glad you came back. Um, you know that you enjoyed the show enough to come back and hopefully, uh, you know enjoy what I have to say is the artist that I present, but I, th- I think it is great to talk about comebacks, you know, as we ended that last episode, kind of discussing that a little bit. Absolutely. And, and we mentioned a few artists that obviously there were some examples where they fell on personal hard times. And then the, yet there were some artists that just by being successful, basically had the, the popularity turned on them and, sure. they, and they became a pariah because of them being happy or popular or on the charts. And by that, you're talking Bee Gees and Donny Osmond. Bee Gees, Donny Osmond, Cher. Sure. Uh, you know, they, they basically, you know, the industry said, we don't want Cher anymore. How dare you be friendly, happy, and entertaining? <laughs> What's wrong with Let's you? Let's punish Let's punish that person. That's right. We are mean, surly, and no, anyway. Uh, but but through perseverance, all of these artists have, have shown the ability to come back many years after they first struck popularity on the music scene. Yeah, and so now as we're going to get into my list, you know, just to kind of remind people as far as, you know, the, the criteria that I chose. And um, I I really wanted to limit who I, I selected to. The original success was prior to 1980. I, I do have an artist here that's 1979. So okay. I do use that cutoff. And, you know, it could have been the, the, the 60s, it could have been the, the 70s. I, I, I don't have anybody in the 50s because, you know, I think Roy Orbison may have been big in the 50s, uh, although his hit Pretty Woman was in the 60s. In the 60s, yeah. yeah. So I don't go much beyond late 60s, I, a little bit, but not, but not too much. And then when they have their comeback... Their comeback for me must have taken place at least in the eighties. Okay, so that's that's why um, you know you'll see you know my artist list ends in nineteen eighty just because I have a huge list you know that I had to pare down. You okay. know you're, you're going to get you know people that uh, you know believe me there there was a lot more than what I, I could have played. So what I have is not necessarily doing kind of what Scott did, where he did a good job kind of giving us stories of people that might have had to overcome some things personally. You know, for the most part, my artists are just people that kind of fill out a favor. And then, or uh, where they were maybe artists in the 70s or 60s and and had a certain sound. And it's surprising that they were able to change 
dramatically into the 80s. Okay. So with that being said, let's get right into my list. And, you know, I'm going to play the the first artist, and it's a band that this song comes from 1977. And the artist is Chicago. Okay. And even at this point, Chicago had been around for a long time. They had been around for a while. This is this is baby, what a big surprise! They started out as the Chicago Transit Authority, right? And this was kind of their ba- last big hit that they had for a while. They they were huge, and this '77, I believe, uh, Terry Kath dies in '78. And the band is distraught. They're ready. They're they're willing to give up at this point. In many ways, Terry Kath, who's the guitar player who who accidentally shot himself yes. to death, he, and he was the leader of the band. So, kind of that sound that you're hearing now, with the classic Chicago horn sound in the background, um, I think Terry Kath deserves a lot of credit for kind of bringing this together. Sure. I mean, we all think of Peter Cetera and his voice, right? But early on, it wasn't Peter Cetera's band. No, it was very much a group effort. Right. And I think the advent of MTV kind of changed that because it sort of vaulted uh, Peter Cetera to the front of the band Chicago because that was the essential formula of music videos. It's like, how do you shoot a music video with a band as large as Chicago? Right, right. So this is a song that, you know, in 1977, you know, because like as we say all the time, you know, I'm three years older than what Scott is. This is really when I'm discovering music, mm-hmm. and I I was very aware of this song, and I remember Chicago. Okay, yeah. I, I you know I heard this on the radio, and I'm recognizing this, and when I heard this, I could tell you it was Chicago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Chicago is one of those bands that they were very easily identifiable. Sure. So, as we mentioned, Terry Kath dies, and the band kind of goes away, and they they tried in the early 80s to, to, to come back a little bit and it, they were just struggling then they went out and um, they they fortunately um, got David Foster mm-hmm. on their side and you know who I say all the time I mistakenly called Richard Foster in episode one I, I apologize uh, uh, for that but I, I try not to go back to episode <laughs> one if, if at all possible there, there's a lot going on we were very confused we didn't understand equipment and so anyways I was trying to read my notes and but that being said, they went out and they got you know David Foster, who, who in many ways is a is a bit of a kingmaker, and and you know a master songwriter, master producer, and he came back, and um, I I specifically remember when this song got released and came out on the radio. Okay, and I didn't necessarily know that it was Chicago at first. <laughs> now those who listened to part one of this episode, yeah. And we opened up by talking about Buffalo, New York. And mm-hmm. we talked about the radio station in Buffalo, New York. This is one of the songs I remember distinctly being played on that radio station when we were up at the cabin listening to the radio. When this came out, I, I, I remember... I didn't like know who it was right away. Okay. I didn't pick up on it right away. And then I remember, yeah, okay, it's Chicago. Oh, yeah, in my, the back of my mind, I'm remembering, oh, yeah. And this is 1982 when this, is, when this comes out. And then I remember 
people really make it a big deal about this because there are a lot of people that love Chicago. And this was off their album Chicago 16. Right. So 16 albums. Correct. Even releasing an album every year, which they didn't do. Right. And that's a lot of years to have before you get a complete revival of your career. And such a different sound, yeah. too. Because they flipped the flipped the page from the 70s to the 80s, and the horns, which were so prominent yes. early in the 70s. The most prominent part of the band. Are starting to take a back seat to the to the and the sound is you talked about David Foster but the sound he's really putting his fingerprints on their on their sound now and in a lot of ways the sound is now Peter Cetera yes yeah he emerges as a star he does and 16 Chicago 16 was a big album 17 ends up going on to become a bigger album and really make them superstars sure. again. Yeah. And Chicago 17 is one of my favorite albums of the whole decade from top to bottom because it just had a ton of hit songs on it. Now, they, they came out with another song after this called Love Me Tomorrow, mm-hmm. which I like more yeah. than this song. Even back in 1982, that was the song that spoke to me. But I thought, in all fairness, this was the song that did put Chicago back on the map again. So I, I went ahead and played that. And... You know, if they decided that that was the one they were going to release first to revive the career, I figured, you know, who am I to go against that? <laughs> That's right. All right. So the the next band that I play, and I, this one kind of brings a smile to my face. All right. So when I come to the comeback, so a lot of these comebacks are artists that I discovered kind of for the first time. Okay. When I'm a little kid. And, you know, these are being released in like 1981. This song comes out in 1981. But I'm going to play for you. The biggest hit for this band. And this is a band that is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Gary U.S. Bonds? Gary, he was on my list, actually. <laughs> I Actually, he, he, he did not make the final cut, but I had Gary U.S. Bonds on the list. <laughs> this little girl. That's a great song. This, of course, is the Moody Blues uh, with uh, uh, Nights in White Satin. And they performed the song at their Hall of Fame ceremony. Okay. You know, I, I remember, I remember this song. What I remember is, if you were a little, ki- you know, if you're laying in bed and you had your radio on, because I often would fall asleep to the radio, and I would, for whatever reason, be awakened in the middle of the night. A lot of a lot of radio stations, or more specifically, radio stations in our area, sometimes they would play entire albums. Yes, they would. Yeah. And I remember this was one of them, and it scared me. When did you listen to it? When would you have heard this? In the 70s? Or? Oh, yeah. I, okay. I, I'm probably maybe seven or eight years old. So I guess I, I take that back when I say that I, I was kind of introduced. I, I knew this song. I heard this. Right. Uh, that other song, uh, you know, I'm just a singer in a rock and roll band. I, I didn't know much else mm-hmm. other than those two songs. But I can see that part we just heard there. That would have scared you as a little kid. I'm laying there in the dark. Yeah, it's, it's creepy. Yeah, I, it, it scared me. I remember laying there, like, kind of half terrified. And, you know, this is late 60s, and then it gets released again in 1972 and becomes a hit. So I, I, I actually scratched my note off, and I, I think it was like 68-ish or so when it, when the original, uh, when it was originally released. But, you know, monumental hit. Big, big hit for, for the Midi-Loose. Their signature song. It is. In many ways. Yeah. And, and now I'm going to, um, they, 
you know, they kind of have a little career. Like, you know, there's a little Scott High sitting there in his room. He's listening to an album from some DJ that, that obviously was influenced by the Moody Blues. And possibly something else you know, in the <laughs> studio. We don't, we don't know that for sure. But. Or he just wanted a bathroom break and decided to put, you know put an album on. Um, <laughs> my bathroom break song was, uh, I had two of them uh, as a DJ and when I would do weddings. Because you, you had to play a song long enough so that you could run to the bathroom and you had to give yourself minimum five minutes. You know, so if it, and possibly a little bit longer because sometimes you're at a wedding reception and the bathroom, there could be a line. You could sure. have to wait. Yeah. So paradise by the dashboard light. Chances are if anybody wanted to talk to me during that song, I was nowhere to be found because I'd be in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. The other one was Rosalita by Bruce Springsteen. That was another good eight minute song. So those are my two. Uh, I, I didn't want to play, you know, Nights in White Satin uh, right. at a wedding reception, <laughs> but uh, I believe Nights in White Satin, if you play like it through its entirety, that's like a nine minute song. Right. Now, of course, the single release is only showing four minutes and 25 seconds right. here, okay. but still not your typical hard pop song. Because that probably doesn't have the spoken word in it. Oh, no. No, yeah. this is just a straight radio song. So okay. anyway, so this is what I know as the Moody Blues. And right. to me, it's dinosaur music to me. But now, you know, I'm, I'm a young whippersnapper. I just entered junior high school. It's 1981. And I hear this song that kind of comes on the radio. Is that the same band? <laughs> well, they changed a couple players in the in the band, but now they're a synth band. Yeah, that's true. And you want to talk about? And, and of course, this is for those of you who don't know. This is Gemini Dream, which was a big hit. Yeah, it sure was. And when we talk about like songs being played at the roller skating rink, this is a roller skating song. Yeah, it sure was. Yeah, this is a good example because they even ended up having a couple more hits after this they one. They did. Yeah. I know you're out there. The, the one that... Wildest Dreams. Wildest Dreams is the one that yeah. jumps into my head. But, but yeah, this I, is the I one that jump-started their career. This, I mean, back again. I absolutely remember this. Yeah. Good song. And I, I remember uh, my buddy, Georgie Ackman, is the one who turned me on to this song. Okay. He was he was the uh, the musical savant back in, in our group of friends back in like 6th, 7th grade. And he was always in touch with who was the hippest latest song. And he was like, oh, you got to listen to this song, Gemini Dream. Okay. He was like, Moody Blues, that old band? That, he goes, yeah, yeah, you're going to like it. Those old guys, huh? Yeah. And I always, you know, I, I love how they do the, the, the two voices at the same time. Yeah. The two lead singers. Yeah. You have, you have the synthesizers. You have the layered voicing. I mean, yeah, it's... It certainly fits in mm-hmm. with the with the time and the and the musical sound that, that they were hitting. It kind of has almost like that Jeff Lynn, a little bit of an ELO yes, sound to it. Yes, it does very much so. Yeah, I think you hit it hit the nail on the head there. But you know, as as we've said before, the '80s were such a fun, happy time, and that's what the music was trying to portray. And this song couldn't be any happier. Sure. Yeah. Anyways, I, I, I love that song, and um, that it always brings back, you know, super fun memories. And like I said, it, it will take me right back to uh, roller skating. Sure. Now, the, the next artist that I'm going to play is an artist that you got to hear during the episode where it was the number ones from my birthday, March 19th. Okay. Throughout out the, uh, the Gen X era. And they got in in the early part of the Gen X era. I'm not going to play that song. And the what I'm going to play now is... Uh, by the band 
America. I actually had America written on my list as an honorable mention. Okay. I forget what was it. What was the uh, uh, what was the one that you played in the other episode? Ventura Highway. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I think these two songs are their signature. Right. Either one could be considered their signature song. Ventura Highway, Horse with No Name. Yeah. yeah it was Tin Man. I think it was Horse with No Name that you played. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. No, it wasn't. It was. It was about driving through the desert. Yeah, Ventura Highway. It was. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But this was this was a band at this when this came out and this came out you know in '74. So you know I'm I'm kind of aware of it. It's got that folk sound to it, yeah. which was kind of popular. And as Scott said in that previous episode, this was a band that was had uh, I think had some English performers, but a lot of American performers that grew up on military bases. Yes, they were they were Americans that grew up in England or yeah. in Europe, right? So they, that's how they got the name America, because they were essentially telling the people, hey, we're Americans. But here it is, you know, 1974, and I, I don't remember when, was it, it was 73-ish when that other song was on the charts? 72, Okay, I think. so that's kind of their heyday. Yeah. You know, 72 through 74, this is when they were really making their mark. And yeah, okay, I liked it, and you would hear it occasionally uh, on kind of on classic rock radio, if and... You know, it wasn't a band that necessarily stood out to me. But then in 1982, and this is when, you know, I am really starting to develop my musical taste. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really starting to buy albums. And I'm, I'm listening to the radio and talking music with people. This song comes out. It's, this isn't a folk song. No, it's not. Isn't it interesting, you know, when we did part one of this episode and there were some artists that were clearly trying to go for a a modern sound, right? And then you had a band like the Doobie Brothers that said, I don't care, I'm going to play what we did 15 years ago. And, but it worked for both of them. It did. So I, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, the Doobies doing something different than what they did when they came out with The Doctor. And I, my first taste of America was this song. Most of the artists that I have selected are artists that I think did a good job of transitioning to what was happening in the 80s. Yeah, and take, take a band like the Moody Blues. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that the Moody's were, were making a ton of money at the turn of the decade because... Nights in White Satin was eight years before. Right. I'm sure they wanted to buy a house or buy a car. <laughs> right. You know, you have to, you got to do what you can to pay the bills. And you know, give them give them some credit for saying, hey, we got we to gotta get our sound up with the times. I, you know, I respect bands that, that stay true to themselves, but there's a lot. You know, the Moody Blues, America, a lot of bands, Chicago, 
went for a distinctly different sound than what they had the decade before. And how many artists tried to do this and failed? Yes. I mean, we're, we're talking about those who had comebacks, but I can't even, I mean, we could probably go back and do the research, but right. it's many times when artists try to sound like what's happening and people are like, no, I'm not going to accept that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know about you, but when I hear this song, I immediately think of the television show Solid Gold. This is a very solid gold sound. They to it. they were like I remember there was like an episode where I don't know if they were co-hosts or something, but it was like there was a big deal made about America being part of solid gold, and they sang this song. Okay, yeah, they probably lip synced. They, they, oh, they probably did, you know. <laughs> but you know, in the in what was you know not really strong MTV around the country yet. Right. Solid Gold was a way a lot of us got to see these artists. Well, we didn't get MTV until 1983. Right. So MTV had been around for two years before we even got it. And most people didn't have it at that point. Correct. I mean, that's when they would run the commercials, you know, tell your your, your provider, I want my MTV. So for, for you and I, a lot of the shows that we would see performers were American Bandstand. Mm-hmm. And then at night, you would have like Solid Gold. And you would also have like America's Top Ten, which was you talked about Kasem's, the Midnight Special, Casey Kasem's, um, uh, you know, TV show, that weekly show that he had. Yeah, so that's how you you, you kind of got turned on to these different artists. So you didn't get a chance to see them a whole lot. Well, I'm going to play my next artist. Okay, and that's an, that's a great segue because the next artist we would probably not have seen on any of those shows. Maybe maybe um, yeah, you know. I, I don't think American Bandstand, I don't think he would have been on, but I'll tell you a show he would have been on. He would have been on Soul Train. Okay. And so this is from 1977. Let it play a little bit. Oh, yeah. I was aware of this in 1977. Got to give it up. Got to give it up. Marvin Gaye. He would not have been on the Midnight Special with us. Well, he may have been, but he definitely was on Soul Train with us. Oh, yeah. This song has durability. Oh, it does. I think it's as good today as it was in 77. Yeah. You know, Marvin Gaye, I'm kind of glad that we have a podcast like this, Sean, because we get to talk about people that were truly great mm-hmm. in our in our generation, but for whatever reasons, time is kind of like, I don't know, covered them up a little bit. Yeah. I think Marvin Gaye's one of those artists. I I. I not really sure why. I mean, I'm going to play his um, his kind of his comeback hit, which ends up kind of being his last hit because, sure. unfortunately, uh, not very long thereafter, he is shot and killed by his father. Yeah. Um, but Marvin Gaye is somebody that had a humongous career in the '60s. Yeah. You know, he was part of the Motown sound. He was one of the main acts at Motown. Yeah, you could arguably say that at the turn of the decade, he was. He was the sing because Motown was about promoting different acts, different groups. Mm-hmm. It was just Marvin Gaye. You know, he he didn't. Ha- it wasn't Marvin Gaye and the Miracles. It, you right. know, it was it was just Marvin Gaye. And now he did a lot of music with Tammy Terrell. Sure, but Marvin Gaye was was a solo act, which was very rare for Motown. Now a lot of that music I kind of discovered later. Right, you know the the, the Motown. So you would hear it. You know, we were more as as little kids. We knew about the Jackson Five, mm-hmm. so we were exposed. And the, the Jackson Five did have their own TV show, which you know we didn't mention on our variety show episode. But you know, they would have acts like a Marvin Gaye on. You know, they might have had some of the other Motown acts, but for the most part, 
these, you know, in in the seventies, you know, somebody like a Marvin Gaye, he's he's popular. Like this is a popular song, mm-hmm. but I don't know that our friends would have known necessarily who Marvin, Marvin Gaye was. Our friends would not have, uh, absolutely not. But I tell you what, in nineteen eighty two, and I'm gonna let me stop that one, and then I'll play you his big comeback. Our friends knew who Marvin Gaye was in nineteen eighty two. Sure. Yeah. And this was a huge hit. And this is Sexual Healing. Which came with a music video. And for Marvin Gaye, it was, even though he had been away for a while, yeah, probably one of his last hits of the 70s was Let's Get It On. So for him to go from Let's Get It On and then kind of reintroduce himself to the American public, with sexual healing, I don't think it really shocked anybody. No, although I think the reason I picked uh, "Got to Give It Up" is I think that was his last. Hit of the was 70s. it? I okay. think so. Okay. Because that was '77. Okay. And then he really disappeared. Yeah. I mean, he was completely gone. And you know, maybe on you know some of the R&B charts, maybe he would have appeared, but he certainly wasn't on the pop charts. Right. And then he comes out with this song, and it was just everywhere. Yeah. So much so, he gives one of the all-time. Greatest renditions of the national anthem at the All-Star Basketball Game. Greatest or worst, depending <laughs> well, on, on who you're talking to. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it was, it was so great in that it was bizarre. It was different. Yeah, it was a different version where he just kind of does it to this tempo. Yeah, and it just kept going on and on and on, and it was it got a little awkward at it one did, point. Yeah, because it went on. You know, the, the national anthem is supposed to go for about 90 seconds, and. The uh, this version I think went for like almost four minutes, so it was yeah. like four times longer than it was supposed to be. But what you know, I love when music can transport you to a specific time and place, and this does for me. I mean, sure. this takes me right back to junior high school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This was a huge song, and it's it's such a shame that this is the last thing we get from him. Yeah. And he was, uh, you know, not to get too political, but he was really one of the first, you know, black artists to get regular rotation videos played on MTV. Yeah, he was. Before the the Michael Jackson camp tried to strong arm uh, the industry, as we talked about before, where they weren't playing black artists. And they said, you know, we're going to pull Michael from the, the channel if you don't play them. Uh, Marvin Gaye was getting played. Yeah, he was. And I think part of it, too, is because he had such a, a lot of uh, street cred or, you know, with... The, so much credibility. You know, with his whole career. Yeah. Yeah, because up to that point, MTV was really a, a channel that played kind of that rock music. Yeah. You know, the REO Speedwagons of the world, Sticks. The Pat, the Pat Benatar. Pat Benatar, Billy Joel. Yeah. Uh, this was certainly a, a step into a different direction, and, and great that it was. It was, you know should have been done before that and i for one was a huge fan of the song yeah and it's it's it still holds up it's something that that i i will never get tired of sure. so anyway so we're gonna we're gonna you know close out marvin gay and i'm gonna go to another artist that was really big in the 60s just like marvin gay okay. was and this this is an artist and i i i picked them in particular because they were so different with their different stages, and they they took the band through three incarnations. Now, people will argue whether it's a continuation of the same band or not. You, I know that's up for argument, but as far as the public, you have Jefferson Airplane, yes, which is what we're listening to right now with Grace Select singing "Somebody to Love." 
Yep. I, 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 very much out of the 60s, very much a, a Woodstock type of song. And they were they were considered like the super cool band of this time. Yep. You know, they were based in that San Francisco very famous Haight Ashbury sure. district. And this and the song White Rabbit. White Rabbit's about as psychedelic a song as of its time. Right. And so they were they were like the hippest, coolest uh, band out there. Uh, when this when the song comes out, well, when we were younger, they they would have these music documentaries, and I, I'd watch them, and I, you would as well, and you got the impression that Jefferson Airplane was considered an important band. Yes, yeah, not so much for when when you think about chart hits, volume of no, hits, they were they were kind of a cutting edge group. So I guess you you know there are certain groups that are out there and. They're, they just have something about them that sort of transcends. Like I would put the Clash in what the in what they were mm-hmm. thought of. Like they were considered an important group. Sure, sure. It, it was something a, a band that was considered really cool, and you identified with that band, and, right. and that was kind of the impression that I got from the hippie historians who were giving me the documentaries that I was watching. Star uh, Jefferson Airplane. For then, kind of changes, and then they changed their name, and I think there was some legal issues involved. But then they became Jefferson Starship, and that was the idea. the The concept came from Paul Kantner, who was yeah. the guitarist, who was kind of was the the uh, the thread that you're gonna you know see throughout a lot of this. Right. They and they have some success, but not necessarily huge chart success. They had a, an album that came out. It was right around the start of MTV. It, it, and it had like uh, Find Jane. Your Way Back and Jane. Find Your Way Back and, and Jane. Jane. Yeah, Jane was probably, was probably my favorite Starship song of all time. It's, uh, uh, that that show we've talked about before, Fridays. Right. Have you watched it when they perform no. on Fridays? Go no. back and watch it. I've, I've watched it probably 20 times. Okay. Just on YouTube where they they get on this you know kind of a competition for you know SNL only is Friday night same concept and they played both Jane and find your way back okay now the thing i remember about St- jefferson starship is uh, marty ballon mm-hmm. the famous marty ballon uh, told a story about you know he was one of the co-founders of jefferson airplane and then at the end he thought that the band was breaking up you know, because everybody's kind of going their separate ways. And then Paul Kanner decides to, well, I want to try and keep this thing together. So we're going to do a reincarnation and call it Jefferson Starship. And they're struggling with the record company. Like the record company's like, you need a hit song or we're going to drop you. So they bring back Marty Ballon. Marty Ballon writes the song Miracles. And the rest of the band's like, hey, thanks. Thanks for our top 10 hit. See you later. Hey, Mickey Thomas, uh, you want to come over and sing that for us? And then... And because Marty sings miracles, but then that was like it for a long time, and he didn't come back until they did like a reunion tour in the late eight. Like I mean, they kicked him to the curb. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's a band that that continues. So it's not like they bottomed out. They they had they had success. Mm-hmm. They they got played on MTV. They they you know had albums. They they probably were still kind of an arena act. I would think they they I don't know how large but they still were headlining i mean i could i could probably see uh you know jefferson starship and aldo nova running the the, spectrum yeah doing that together sure Sure. so when i say a comeback you know it's you would some people might be out there saying why would you say they had a comeback they they were always there yeah but they didn't necessarily chart Mm -hmm. and so i'm gonna and gonna play another one and part of the reason i went with this one and 
folks out there, you know what's coming. You know what I'm going to play. And they had such a transformation. We built this city. That song that I just played before, Somebody to Love. Yeah. And now you're playing probably the purest pop song you're ever going to hear. It's Yeah, you go from down and dirty to glistening and clean and... Well, I mean, they knew how to make hit songs. And now they're Starship. Now they're Starship, yeah. So and so that's why I say some people might dispute whether this is part of the legacy. Come on, it's still Grace Slick and, and Mickey up there singing. True. And Mickey Thomas actually controls the name now to this day. Yeah. Since everybody else has essentially either died or retired. There, there have been many lists that have put this on the worst songs of all time. I completely disagree. I disagree too because, you know, you're going by the ear test, and when it came out, it was a very popular song. And did, you see, did it not go to number one? I, I it did. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, obviously, there's the popularity. It's just kind of funny when you listen to the words, and they're talking about corporate America, stuff that you could probably argue today, but they're complaining about like. How things have gotten like it's almost like they're trying to be political while having the squeaky clean sound, right? Which I thought was kind of. But we built the city on rock and roll, Scott. Yeah, that was the foundation. Yeah, where'd the rock and roll go, Sean? <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not there. It's it's on old nostalgia shows. Um, but you know, this. I think part of the brilliance of this song was the first time you heard it, you're singing the chorus. Yeah, and. Even though it, it was it was a different different sound from what they were even as Jefferson Starship. Jefferson Starship still very much had a rock sound to it and this this definitely took a chart. It's almost like they wanted they wanted a hit song. Yeah, and so the the first song that I played, Somebody to Love, came out in nineteen sixty seven. This was 1985, mm-hmm. and you know we talk about with in the previous episode with Aretha Franklin kind of having that 1985 sound, and that's what that is right there. Sure, I mean you hear the synthesizers, the, the way the drums are programmed. It's, it's, it's what was happening. And I, like I said, you know, I'm I'll I'll let it go, but I just I get frustrated sometimes when you know the critics want to you know put something down as not being hip and cool which is so ironic because the band that was considered the the hip and cool band that was above all the other sellouts becomes perhaps the ultimate sellout and and i think they talked about that uh, you know in their in the behind the music on on starship and the fact that they uh you know they were at once thought of as the coolest group in yeah. in music and now all of a sudden they're kind of being laughed at but you know what it's really helped the members at least like Grace slick in retirement i guarantee you that they made more money off the second song than he did off the first song guaranteed of which second song that you just played oh yeah oh yeah and then because of that then the song sarah becomes a huge hit yes off the same album yeah and then the and then the fall the subsequent album um has that well i'm drawing a blank on the song for the mannequin uh Nothing's going to hold Nothing's us. Nothing's going to stop, stop us, us now. now. Yeah. Huge hit. Yeah. So this led to a string of big time hits. I think Sarah was number one as well. I think well. you're right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's, you know, that's the Jefferson Airplane, which became ultimately became Starship. We go from, you know, the Woodstock generation to right in the heart of the, of the wonderful 1980s. So with my next artist, I'm going to, I'm going to go with the Woodstock generation again. Okay. And, and let's go right back to a band that feature prominently 
at Woodstock. Shanana. <laughs> they were there. Okay. This is a song not played at Woodstock, but this is yeah. 1970. This is, of course, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Not young. Yeah. And that's okay. I I'm, I agree with you. And so become yourself because the past A complete supergroup. So you had uh, David Crosby who was kicked out of the birds. Yep. Uh, always consider the voice. You have Stevie Stills from Buffalo Springfield. And then you have Graham Nash from the Hollies. Yeah, and Graham Nash was an eyelash away from being cast on the monkeys. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I did not know that. He was one of the final cuts, and they decided the British guy was going to be Davy Jones instead right? of Graham really? Nash. Yeah. Oh. It probably worked out well for both of them. Yeah. Yeah, but he he was literally one of the considerations for it. I just think, you know, how that completely changed the career. Absolutely. And also kind of the, uh, the feel for the monkeys. Um, I don't know Graham. I don't know. Maybe he would have been a silly slapstick guy as well. But I think that most people would would say that when you hear the voices, those three voices together, it's just just something there, and it, yeah. like they're like no other other group ever. There, it's just. I think they always said that about Daryl Hall and John Oates is that you know Daryl Hall is, is an incredible singer, and John Oates has a really really good singing voice. But when you put the two of them together. It goes from it takes it to another level, right? And and just that harmonizing uh, with Crosby, Steals and Nash is it's special. I mean, it just it's something that you can replace members in the band, and you'll I don't think you'll ever get that that specific sound back. But you hear that song, and so once again, nineteen seventy still kind of has a bit of a Woodstocky, hippie-ish kind of feel mm-hmm. to it, and you think, okay, they've had their time in the sun, yeah. They're, they're not necessarily someone that's going to be relevant in 1982. Mm-hmm. But in 1982, they released a song. And, you know, I was aware of who Crosby, Stills, and Nash were. Sure. I, it, they, I mean, this, this song did not come as a surprise. But in 1982, they came out with this song, and I was instantly taken by it. Yeah. This, this was, was, like, for a while, probably, like, like, my favorite song. One of my favorite songs of the year. Especially like when Steven sings. I, I like his voice. Yeah. And there's, you know, Steven Stills, when he talks about writing this song, he's writing about going out. It's literally him going on a, on a trip out on his boat because mm-hmm. he's getting ready to get divorced. <laughs> so, you know, it's like you said, you know, you're writing about perspective where you're, as a kid, you're going to hear a song a certain way. As an adult, you're going to hear a song a certain way. Um... But when I go back and listen to the sound now, it's got so much more texture to it than just liking the beat and the voices like I did when I was younger. I didn't really pay attention to what was in the song. And I I think it was Casey Kasem. I think he's the one that, on his show, told me what the term Southern Cross meant. Okay. Because I was like, I don't know what that means. And it's like, oh, it's like a sailing term. Okay. Yeah, it is. Nautical, yeah. Yeah. And there are the voices. Yeah. And again, without Young. <laughs> uh. I just, 
just the, the harmonies with it, it. When I heard this song, it made me have such an appreciation for the earlier work. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's this, a good point. This definitely brought a new generation into the Crosby, Stills, and Nash camp. And that's why, in, in my part, when I did my covered my artists and groups, I thought it was, to me, it, it's it kind of opened up a whole new world mm-hmm. because these older groups were coming in with with these hit songs. It's like, oh man, now when you're now you hear Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and like you snap your fingers and you're like, oh, that's Crosby. You know, you don't even have to. You might not have heard the song before, but it's like I know who they are. Sure, and that it, it kind of widens your broadens your uh, musical base. It it does, and it, it was a tricky time to navigate from the 1970s into what became the MTV generation. You're right. And how do you make yourself as you know middle aged guys like these three guys were at the time relevant to at the, you know where I am at the time, and I'm in junior high school. Right, and they they tweak the sound just enough. To, to make it relevant to its time. It's got a little faster beat to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but uh, one of my one of my all-time favorite songs. But the integrity of the group remains the same as if they sang it a cappella 15 years before. So when I was compiling my list uh, for this episode, the uh, now you've heard two songs that were kind of the catalyst for what got me rolling: uh, the Moody Blues, Gemini Dream. And Crosby, Sills, and Nash with uh, Southern Cross. Sure. Because I just remember being, you know, of that age when both those groups came out and suddenly understanding and liking some of these older artists. Okay. That's All a right. good one. So I'm going to go with an, another artist that, as, as I play the um, the song from, that they had as a hit in 1972. Okay. And it, it's, it's a song that we're only going to play a snippet of it because it is a long one. But uh, it's their biggest hit. This is this is a song that in 1972. Oh my! <laughs> the uh, the DJ would have used to go to the bathroom. This this one clocks in at eight minutes and thirty seconds. Man, he could have gone down the street for a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. So we're not going to play the whole thing, but this is yes, the band yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the kings of the early progressive rock sound. Prog rock, yeah. Strong following. You know, uh, you know, a, a, a reporter that Scott and I follow uh, from the Philadelphia area, Ruben Frank. Ruben would love, I would imagine, would love a band like Yes, I would think. Unless he'd say they're sellouts. Yeah, he'd probably call them sellouts. Yeah, now, but yeah. at the time, he really, really liked the prog rock types of bands. Yeah, true. Uh, so, listeners, kind of like tune into what you're hearing right now. This is definitely not art. These are not artists going for, for a pop audience. Yeah, I mean, they would, they could, they could depending on what that instruments that they're playing they could very easily be playing this in a jazz band or a jazz bar they you know everyone that ever played in yes is always considered at the peak of their musical abilities I mean, they're always considered the best of the best yeah I, everyone is a, is essentially a virtuoso yeah in his field i mean you know some of the famous people were steve howell was in the band and uh, john anderson's the there's the singer that you hear yeah. and that you know they're kind of like you know the core but they'd have you know, always just just incredible musicians, and as these prog, almost as Scott says, jazz artists, they had these long, kind of overindulgent songs. Overindulgent, I think, is a good way to describe it. Yeah. So, anyways, that kind of gives you a little flavor for this. Sure. All right. This is what I'm thinking of about this band. Okay. In my mind, so in in 1983, 
they come out with a completely different sound. This is, of course, owner of Lonely Heart. And this won the band a boatload of awards this year. You know, that, that particular year in 1983. Innovative music video. Uh, very memorable. And you're right, Sean. I mean, they kind of went from that, as you, as you said, overindulgent eight minute song now now it's a lot tighter they're not going off with one instrument dominating it's it's a it's a little bit fused together and they're, they're certainly going for more commercial sound right and the whole album was this way it, it was you know the album for those of you who remember is 90125 and I remember they came up with that because that I guess that was just a catalog number that they okay. were signed and so they just kept it okay. you know their artistic grits yeah but so, you know, Steve Howell's not here in the band, and they have Trevor Raven in, and he comes in, and Trevor Raven, my understanding was this project was originally supposed to be his solo project, and then some of the guys from Yes were brought in to kind of work with him, and like, hey, let's just turn this into a Yes album. Okay. But this was, this became, of the early days of MTV, this, this was one of the biggest bands, at least for this album. This was important because... They were one of the earlier British bands to have heavy rotational airplay on MTV. Mm-hmm. Like this video was one of the first British bands I remember on MTV. Probably goes in the same line as Culture Club and Duran Duran. Yes is right there at around the same time. So, and yeah, this 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 video was immensely popular on, on the channel. Yeah. It, it was. So, uh, of those of you, um, of our listeners who had MTV in the early days, because, you know, not everyone had it right away, but by 1983, it was really starting to gain steam. Like Scott and I said, that's when we got MTV. Right. So, I, I definitely became a fan of the band. You know, went back and listened to some of the earlier stuff. I didn't really like it that much. But I liked, I liked the stuff that, that came afterwards. Yeah. I mean, as an adult now, I can go back and, and listen to, you know, the, the, the 70s version of yes and i'm like i mean they're incredible musicians sure. i mean yeah. there's, there's no there's no denying it it's still not my cup of tea but we as you listeners know scott and i like the pop music we so do it's yeah. you know i we're, we're unashamed to admit that all right moving on to our next artist that had a comeback well you know scott talked about the fact that graham nash almost got the job working on the television show the monkeys and he almost Got the role that went to Mr. Davy Jones. Hey, there's Davy Jones right there. Oh, I could hide neath the wings of the bluebird as she sings. The six o'clock alarm would never ring. But it rings. And I rise, wipe the sleep out of my eyes. My shaven razor's cold and it stings. 
Sasha, how could anyone not love that? Well, the fans sure did because remember, the Beatles were going strong at this point. This is 1967 and, when this song is released. And the Monkees were outselling the Beatles. So, as a, as a little kid, and I'm, I'm only born in 1968, so I'm not around for this. However, the, the Monkees were in such heavy rotation in our childhood, I felt like I was seeing it when it happened. Sure, and we watched them every day on TV. You know, the reruns from, from the Monkees TV show. And it's it's funny because I just got done reading the autobiography of Sally Field. Okay. So when she was shooting the Flying Nun, the monkeys were on you know basically on the same set area doing their show. All right. And she always commented about how she wished that she could be them because it always looked like they were having so much fun, and she was being you know dressed like a nun and. Uh, you know, she didn't feel like she was able to like let loose and, and have fun where they looked like they're having endless fun whenever they wanted to. And that's kind of the vibe that you got from the show. Sure. Was, you know, these four guys were, were hanging out, living in the same house, you know, being a bunch of goofballs, singing and uh, getting into a whole bunch of misadventure. Yeah. It was, you mentioned Davy Jones, but it was also Peter Tork mm-hmm. and um, Mike Naismith. Mike Naismith and also Nikki uh, Dolans. Nikki Dolans. So. They were, as you know, time wore on, and they they really fought to be allowed to play their own instruments mm-hmm. because they did receive a lot of criticism for it. But even so, for for a two year period, they were the biggest group in the world, and they were like I said, they were outselling the Beatles, and the Beatles were in their heyday in their prime. They were, and then suddenly the the brakes went on. Well, yeah, and especially for us as we were getting into a you know like our getting a little bit older into the 80s i mean the 60s was two decades away Mm -hmm. and and you had asked me a question at the beginning of of the episode when you asked about looking at music in the past and i said no because if if a song was a year old it was gone sure and we're always thinking of looking forward right so we weren't necessarily looking back although you and i did like to watch the monkeys TV, so we knew we knew all their songs, but but not every one of our friends did, and I I don't I don't know if they weren't allowed to as little kids get exposed to that if okay. they didn't have TVs I don't know what it was, but there was like it seemed like people might have known who they were, but you and I it's as if we grew up in the in the sixties it's that we know we knew all about these guys uh, well, yeah like I said because they always played their songs on the shows yeah. so we knew all their songs yeah we come home from school and watch them. And that's when they were on. So, but, you know, that was kind of the 70s as we were growing up. But then as you get into the 80s, you know, Scott said, it's in the rearview mirror. People forget about them. Then a revival started mm-hmm. with them around 1986. MTV started playing old Monkeys reruns. Yeah. Yeah. They would show them late at night. They would do late night programming, which you and I were. Mm-hmm. They would show the Monkeys. They would show Gumby. They would show Dragnet. They would show uh, the Young Ones. I, I mean, like there the was, Young Ones. There was a lot of this television that we were, that, Either we had already seen as when we were younger, or we're being exposed to it for the first time. Like I knew what Dragnet the TV show was, but I never watched it. Sure. But then when it was being shown on MTV, we watched it every night. Yeah, absolutely. Especially so, in the summertime. So, but and to kind of capitalize on that fame, the Monkees get back together again, and they release this following song that same year in 
Chris has Mickey Dolan's right there. Yes. And the song is That Was Then, This Is Now. And, you know, not all the members participated in the album. I don't, think Mike, I don't think Mike is part of it. And, and Davy Jones didn't participate in the recording of this song, but he did end up joining them on the reunion tour. So I think it was just Davy, Peter, and uh, Mickey were on the tour, right? On the tour, yeah. Yeah. Now, I think, I think Mike ended up doing a couple of dates. Okay. But essentially the reunion tour was the three instead of the four. And of course, you know, that was then, this is now, is kind of playing upon what, you know, it's now 1986. They're having this revival and they're kind of having a revival for something that happened back in the 60s. It's almost 20 years yes. since they were on TV. Well, it was 20 years. And so they were, you know, that's kind of like, I don't know, the whole purpose of the song. Yeah. And I think for, for fans and for the band, it was a little cathartic because like some of the groups that we talked about over the course of this episode so I think the, the Monkees were one of those groups that got kicked to the curb because they didn't quote unquote play their own instruments right and that was a big criticism back in the day and it's kind of a shame because you know they weren't allowed to no I mean and they fought and fought and fought and the the producers of the albums even though the guys could sing it was their voices sure but as the one one of the guys who was sort of helping produce the album, he's like, "Look, uh, you know, Mickey Dolan's worked extremely hard to learn how to play the drums." He goes, "But I can get a session musician in there and do it in one or two takes. It takes Mickey twenty takes. Sure. So yeah. you're you're eating up all this production time and time's money. Yeah. In the studio, so had a nice revival. One of my favorite things about it was now my contemporaries that I was like in high school with at the time. You know, uh, they knew who the Monkeys were and could. All right, so they may have known who they were, but now they could discuss the episodes with me sure. for the first time because I've been talking, probably dropping lines from Monkey's episodes <laughs> for you know my you know whole seventeen years at that time. Somebody other than my brothers can <laughs> right, have to right. finally understand. It's like okay, I, we get it now, Sean. Now you can stop talking about it. So um, I'm going to go to on my list. The there's an artist here, and I got to admit, I kind of broke my own rule. This is the only artist that I allowed where they had a hit in 1980 because it is actually 1980 but <clears throat> i still think of them as a 70s band and uh you know I'll, when, once i play this you're going to immediately know who this is Of course, this is Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. and we have another Brick in the Wall, Part 2. Yeah, and this is in one of the episodes that you and I spoke about when we sort of talked about the, the decline of disco. I think mm -hmm. we did the March 19 number yes. one. Yes, yes. And to me, it was like, this was the album that rock fans were waiting for. And that's part of the reason why I allowed it to be on my list and kind of break the rules a little bit. Because okay. it was such an influential album, and it... I mean, I think it was recorded in this in '79 and released in '80, and so uh, for me, Pink Floyd's an, is a '70s band. Yeah, no doubt. But you know, with with Pink Floyd, you know, they had some conflicting personalities. <laughs> they had a very strong personality, you know, Roger Waters. I mean, yeah. Roger Waters, who you know, Roger was the primary songwriter and. 
he um, it was I think a taskmaster is is kind of the way they would put it and he, yeah. he was not an easy guy to work with and yet he was not a great singer so he while he sang some his range is is very limited he wasn't known as a somebody who would collaborate he would tend to bring the projects in with him yeah and he would hand out the assignments and say this is what you're playing this is what you're playing and Pink Floyd was a band that had been around for at this point uh, 15 um, you know 15 16 years in 1980 well yeah sure a long time i'm sure they probably wanted to tell roger to pound sand because i'm sure they had stuff to contribute as well, well. and and especially when you talk about dave gilmore right you know dave gilmore who you know for the most part is the voice of pink floyd and his guitar sound is one one of the most distinctive guitar sounds in all of music consider one of the greatest guitar players of all time when you hear him play you know it's him yeah and you know I, I heard Roger Walters interviewed by Howard Stern not too long ago. And he said that, you know, Stern asked him, does it bother you that you need other people to sing your songs for you? Really? He and asked him that? He did. Wow. And he said, yes, it does. Yeah. I can, I can see why. Because if he had his, his own druthers about it, he would probably write all the songs, play all the songs, and sing all the songs. And not to deal with anybody else. Yeah, I, and there's a lot of artists that have done that over the years. Like, think Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. think um, uh, Dave Grohl. You know, yeah. all those guys, can they don't need anybody else to, to make their albums. But Roger Walters can't sing the way Dave Gilmore can. Right. And he, well, you know, I said how distinctive Dave's guitar playing is. But, you know, you can still go and get a session guitar player, take him on the road, and he's going to do a reasonable impression Sure. But even when they may have been at each other, Roger Waters still had to take Dave Gilmore on the road. He fired other members mm-hmm. of the band, but he could never get rid of Dave Gilmore. Right. And then so ultimately they you know, they, they this album is, is, is in a lot of ways the pinnacle of their career. They they have they go and they have another album. It, it was, it's like the final stage or whatever it's called and it's not super successful among maybe hardcore Pink Floyd fans, mm-hmm. where, where this was a, a phenomenon, where this was, you know, a, a stadium act that toured around the sure. country. And so Roger Waters decided, well, when I'm when I'm ready to be done with it, everybody's ready to be done with it, and I'm just I I say there's no more Pink Floyd because I'm Pink Floyd okay. in a way. Well, the other band members didn't. Agree with that. So now, now during the 80s, for the most part, Dave Gilmore goes out and he do, he performs with other people. Mm-hmm. He spends a lot of time with Pete Townsend. You know, Pete does his solo career, and it's kind of interesting that Dave is kind of his touring guitar player. And they, it, what I mean, what a, a, a powerhouse lineup, sure. having yeah. those two guys together, you know, as buddies pl- and playing. But then in 1987, Dave Gilmore and, uh, decides that, you know, I'm, we're going to get the band back together again. And Roger Waters has no part of this song or album. And timing being what it is, this is one of my favorite songs when it came out. Oh, yeah. really like this one. I liked it better at the time than, say, like The Wall. It wasn't harsh. It wasn't dark. You're right. The, the tone is a lot more optimistic. That's exactly the word I was going to use. Yeah. It's optimistic. Yeah. Can you? You could, of course you can picture the video, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Can, Guy jumps off the cliff and becomes an eagle. And, <laughs> oh yeah, it's 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 great. 
And I, I remember Dave Gilmore being interviewed about it when they when they jump started the the band again, and he was like, "As far as I'm concerned, I'm more important to the sound than Roger Waters. It's my voice, it's my guitar. You know that, it, and it much to Roger Waters' chagrin." They became humongous. Yeah. And they, they once again became a stadium band. Yeah. And he was not, I mean, he wasn't selling out arenas by, or with a solo tour. And to say that, that Roger Waters was bitter is an understatement. Yeah. He was very critical of this album because it was the first Pink Floyd album that he was not a part of. Mm-hmm. So he, he essentially told David Gilmore, he's like, this is a Pink Floyd, this is the David Gilmore solo album. Well, maybe so. It's still good. <laughs> like, um, so if if Roger Waters would have done the same thing, yeah, then would it not have been the Roger Waters solo album? Um, but no, it's. I mean, when I think of Pink Floyd, I, I, I one of these. This is one of the songs I always think of. So I know there's a lot of Pink Floyd purists, and you know, among our, our younger listeners, uh, I like the fact that they've gone back. And that you know they can go on Spotify and they can listen to old Pink Floyd and and uh, you know experience Dark Side of the Moon. But for me, just kind of where I was at in my life, you know, this is senior year of high school, yeah. and it's it very optimistic song. It's it's very smooth. And for the first time, I'm like, yeah, I think I like Pink Floyd. This is one. This is one time where we jumped on the Pink Floyd bandwagon because you know up to that point you had to be pretty hardcore, yeah, to, to follow Floyd because they certainly weren't popular you know from like 80 after 80 not much they weren't very popular until that album came out of course there was momentary lapse of reason and learning to fly hello everyone it's scott from the gen x playback show we've reached the end of quarter number three in our episode on musical comebacks great musical comebacks of the gen x era and sean in part three as you just listened to, focused on a lot of some very renowned acts from the 60s and 70s, particularly the early parts of the 60s and 70s. And when you listen to somebody like uh, a band like uh, Jefferson Airplane and how they evolved into Starship or the Moody Blues and how they went from being prog rock to synthesizers, it's just amazing that Gen X offered all these different uh, types of of music and these these comebacks. I guess the bands might argue that and say that they never really went away. But for music fans, at least in the top forty chart era, that was certainly the case. When you listen to a, a group disappear for a good eight, nine, ten plus years, uh, or in the case of the Monkees, disappear for twenty years and then come back and have you know a, a chart topping song. So. It's very cool to uh, to go back and reminisce on some of these groups, and hopefully you're enjoying, uh, if you have enjoyed all three parts to this point, I'm sure you'll enjoy the last hour, which will be next week, as Sean concludes his musical comebacks, um, you know, his favorites from the Gen X era. So uh, glad you're enjoying it so far, and stay tuned for part four next week when we uh, finish up Sean's list. So for my brother Sean, I'm Scott, and we are the Brothers High, and once again we thank you for listening to the Gen X Playback Show, and we'll talk to you next week. See ya.